uh, my teaching assistant, she was a lovely, lovely lady. Um, and actually, in the end, when I eventually did tell her, um, her line was, well, why didn't you tell me that earlier? <laughs> um, which I guess as you get more confident, you kind of think, oh, yeah, why didn't I? But um, I think I was probably shaped very much by um, what I'd seen in the media, um, uh, uh, certainly as a child growing up. Um, I think, yes, I'd started teaching in the the, um, the, the end years, really, of, of Section 28, but I was also a pupil at school um, during the period of Section 28. So actually, I wasn't able to kind of um, experience any role models as such. Um, so I very much felt really quite isolated. Hi, I'm Joseph. Hello, my name's Adam. Welcome to Pride and Progress, a podcast that celebrates the progress of LGBT plus inclusion in education. Each week, we speak with LGBT plus educators and allies. We hear their stories, discuss what they are doing to make their educational spaces more inclusive, and celebrate the power of diversity. This week, we are pleased to welcome Troy Jenkinson. Troy is a primary school head teacher and uses he, him pronouns. Troy started his career in Nottinghamshire just over 20 years ago, while Section 28 was very much a shadow over gay teachers. Leadership took him into Leicestershire, where he has worked in several schools. In his most recent, he was fortunate enough to work with Andrew Moffat, helping to pilot the No Outsiders project in the county with tremendous success. Simultaneously, he has written children's picture books celebrating diversity issues that were born out of storytelling in assemblies. Troy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you? Very good. Thank you for joining us. Adam said there in the introduction that you started teaching 20 years ago during Section 28. What was it like beginning teaching at that time? Uh, it's, that's a really tricky question because on the one hand, uh, I was starting my career, so I was quite uh, excited about starting my career. I'd, uh, I'd always wanted to be a teacher right from being a small child. Um, I used to line all my teddy bears up and kind of teach them the alphabet. Um, so I was really excited to become a teacher, but at the same time, uh, I was very much aware that um, if I said anything that was a little bit untoward, um, I, was, I was very fearful of what might happen to me. Um, I wasn't necessarily aware of Section 28, um, as, as such, but I was aware that actually you weren't allowed to kind of um, talk about being gay in the classroom. Um, and that was, um, I think, quite inhibiting, actually, uh, for me as a, as a professional, um, in the sense that um, ordinarily, um, when a teacher um, comes into the classroom and, and they'll, they'll talk about everyday things and you might talk about your, your um, wife or your husband or um, your children. Um, and I didn't feel that I was able to do that. Um, so I think that was quite inhibiting in a sense that I was almost leading a double life. Um, uh, so starting teaching kind of age 21, uh, I was obviously enjoying going out and uh, um, clubbing and enjoying going and meeting friends, um, and that was very much a, a totally separate, um, a totally separate part of my life. In effect, I was leading a double life, and it really felt like I was leading a double life. 
I think you're right. So many teachers share things about themselves, parts about their life. And that's part of how we build relationships with children and within our classrooms. But it's also a big part of how we build relationships with colleagues and with the people we work with at school. You said that you didn't feel that you could be open with your class at the time. And obviously under Section 28, you would not have been able to. But what was your relationship like with colleagues at the time? Did that double life kind of exist with the relationship with colleagues as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, To the point where uh, I would, uh, if I started um, seeing uh, seeing somebody, uh, I would refer to them as her. Um, It was very much, I I was uh, very clustered. um, And it was really, really hard uh, because I had to be very mindful of what I said. Um, I, I'd actually started seeing somebody as I, uh, as I started um, my primary career. Um, so um, very often uh, my teaching assistant would ask me um, if I was going out at the weekend, what I was going to be doing. Yeah, I'm going out with friends. And, and I'd almost shut the conversation down. So it was very, very much a, a double life um, to, to begin with. Um, and it was only as I started to feel a bit more comfortable um, that I was able to kind of open up and I opened up very, very gradually. Um, my, my teaching assistant was actually quite a little bit older than me. And uh, my, my first school um, where I worked in NQT was also a church school. And so I, I almost had to be very much on the guard um, about what I said, because obviously I didn't want to offend anybody um, in, in terms of thinking about their, their religious um, aspects as well. And uh, my teaching assistant, she was a lovely, lovely lady. Um, and actually, in the end, when I eventually did tell her, um, her line was, well, why didn't you tell me that earlier? <laughs> um, which I guess as you get more confident, you kind of think, yeah, why didn't I? But um, I think I was probably shaped very much by um, what I'd seen in the media, um, uh, uh, certainly as a child growing up. Um, I think, yes, I'd started teaching in the, the, um, the, the end years, really, of, of Section 28, but I was also a pupil at school um, during the period of Section 28. So actually, I wasn't able to kind of um, experience any role models as such. Um, so I very much felt really quite isolated. Um, it wasn't actually until university that I eventually came out. Um, and it was actually partway through um, my second year um, that I actually came out um, to myself, actually. Um, I almost, uh, looking back, I, 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 I can now see that I was almost trying to make myself not gay um, in order to kind of keep this, this persona. And I was very much, I beat myself up quite a lot about the fact that I've got this double life and I felt very ashamed of it as well. Um, and I can I can see how even today you can see that in in some individuals they feel very much um, uncertain about how they can talk about their sexuality, um, and and they don't feel confident about talking uh, about their sexuality, um, and you've got to almost allow people to to do that in their own in their own time under their own steam. Yeah, that's a really, it's really interesting to hear your experience over the last 20 years. So I think 20 years isn't long at all, is it really? And people forget how recently Section 28 was. And even though Mm. it was repealed, you know, the best part of 18 years ago, 
the impact of it, it was devastating to the point where people still question whether it's okay to be open in schools or have these conversations. When we spoke the other day in preparation for this, you gave you, you shared a story. Um, I think a head teacher had commented on your hair or something to that effect, and kind of referenced <laughs> Section Twenty Eight. I think that's yeah. quite. That, this, I'll ask you to share that in a second, but I think Section Twenty Eight was quite a vague um, law written purposefully, so it feels. So it created this culture of fear without being overly specific. Could you share that with example with us? Um, of course, yeah. So uh, I hadn't been teaching very long, um, and. Uh, I was trying to kind of experiment a little bit um, with how I felt. And uh, one of those things that I did, I went and uh, I got myself a dreadful haircut. Thank goodness I didn't actually take any photos. <laughs> um, and those that I did have do not exist now. Um, but I, I had, uh, I bleached my hair and I had this um, dreadful black stripe put down the, the, the back of my hair. And I walked into school and my, uh, my head teacher at the time, um, she basically took one look at me and she said, I could send you home uh, for having your hair like that. And um, I'm not usually uh, very confrontational, but uh, she obviously pressed a button. Um, and so I said, well, you wouldn't send my teaching assistant home uh, because she's actually got uh, highlighted hair. Um, so why would you send me home? And uh, straight away, she kind of, she she didn't actually say anything about Section 28, um, but she just said uh, something along the lines of uh, the fact that we worked in a church school um, and obviously you need to be very careful about working in a church school. And it was just that underlying implication um, of just be careful because you could actually lose your job. And... And I don't think she actually meant anything particularly um, uh, nasty about it, but it was just that underlying implication um, that kind of shut me up a little bit, actually. Um, and uh, I just, she actually did give me a lot of opportunities, actually, as a, as a teacher. Um, she wasn't the, the, the entire dragon that um, it sounds like I'm painting her out to be, um, but it, it was just that implication and that that implication then plays on your mind um, and I very much uh, kept myself to myself um, it was only actually uh, she was aware that I was gay at that point um, in actual fact uh, she actually she stayed over at our house when we went out on a, a social um, so she was very much aware of um, my uh, my partner um, and it was just, I don't know, I think it took, took me back a little bit, to be fair. Um, and so I, I just was very mindful of what parents might think. Um, and so I'd be very, uh, very mindful of, of the way that I acted around um, the, the school in particular. Um, I, I think this would have been probably about eight years into, into my teaching career, um, seven or eight years into my teaching career. Um, and she was actually my second head teacher. Um, the first head teacher that I had, um, she was very old school, um, uh, a, a very devout Christian. Um, and again, I didn't really talk to her um, about my sexuality. Um, in fact, I remember when I did tell her, um, this was just about uh, maybe a few months before she retired um and it was like telling my mum it was it was awful in terms of 
um, how I felt because I, I, I just I said to her, I need to talk to you in your office. I've got something that I need to talk to you about. Um, I can't even remember what prompted me to want to talk to her and tell her. Um, but at, at this point, I'd, I had told my teaching assistant. Um, and I guess I was probably a little bit worried that maybe um, she'd find out in another way. Um, and so I, I sat down and, and told her and it, she very much brushed it off. She was like, yep, that's fine. Move on. And it was me that made a bigger thing of it than her. Um, but then my, my second head teacher, as I say, I think um, I was a little bit more confident until that conversation um, where it just kind of put me back in my box, I think. One of the things that I always find quite funny is when people ask um when did you come out and I think and I always respond which time <laughs> because it, <laughs> yeah. I think there's this misunderstanding that um as LGBT people we come out once and then the world knows and everything after that is free um but what you've described there is kind of a number of different times where you spoke about coming out to yourself which is the mm. first step for us all and and then you spoke about coming out to a TA and then to your head teacher but then your head teacher changed so you have to come out to another one and mm -hmm. of course then when you move schools or move into a different job you're again finding yourself in a space where you have to make that a decision to come out again and to decide if that space is safe for you is that something that's followed you throughout your whole career as you've moved between different jobs uh I would say it has to a certain degree. Um, certainly when I, when I got my first headship, um, I, the first thing I did, I, I started my school at the beginning of the school year and I'd moved from uh, Nottinghamshire to Leicestershire. And uh, the school that I'd got the headship at, I mean, it's a beautiful uh, little school in the middle of the, the Vale of Beaver. Um, and uh I used some of the time in the, the inset training days that we had um, to actually have catch-ups with all of the staff. And I just wanted to kind of get to know them uh, because I felt that actually if, uh, as a school leader, you need to kind of know your staff to be able to kind of help them and get the best out of them and kind of coach uh, the best out of, uh, out of them. And so I sat down and arranged these kind of 15 20 minute kind of catch-ups with, with all of the staff and uh one of the first um staff members that i had again ironically it was a, a an lsa a teaching assistant that i um that i was working with um and i asked her to tell me about herself and i asked her to tell me about um her her background and she she got quite emotional um because she was talking about um, the fact that she had um, she just um, split up with a partner and th there was quite a lot of baggage there um, and so then um, she spoke to me and she said do you want to tell me about yourself now at the time um, I just lost my parents um, and I was quite together with it um, but obviously when you talk about that you do sometimes get a little bit choked up and and I said that I'd lost my parents. And she said, oh, and is there anybody that's there for you? And in that split second, um, it, it, it was almost automatic. And I just said, yes, um, I've got a boyfriend. Um, and that actually, um, I think because she laid herself out 
and opened herself up to to make effectively making herself a little bit vulnerable that allowed me to kind of think yeah I can do the same and that was um, I didn't really plan on doing that um, but then that made it an awful lot easier to then talk to the rest of the team um, and actually I it, it made me feel an awful lot more comfortable um, working with the rest of the team. Um, I didn't actually um, officially come out to, to, to the school as into the children, um, but I did um, then um, quite happily talk about um, Matt, my, he's now my husband. Um, I talked about him quite openly with a lot of different engagements and he ended up, uh, he, he was then able to come down to different school functions um, and it was almost like um, I wasn't leading that double life anymore. It was it was an amazing, um, I think it was probably a real highlight for me in my career because it gave me that confidence um, to think, yes, I can do this. I can lead a school. I can be me um, and and do my job. Um, and it was really empowering. And, and it's very interesting because um, the chair of governors, um, uh, I've, I've got through quite a few chairs of governors in my time, um, but the, the chair of governors um, at the time was also a parent. Um, and because I'd, I'd felt confident enough to talk to the staff, I was able to talk to her. And um, so I felt I had the backing straight away. Um, and then when there was a change of uh, chair of governors, again, we had uh, quite a good relationship where we could talk openly to the point where actually... Um, I was invited to do uh, do a teacher exchange in Tanzania, and obviously in Tanzania it's illegal to be um, gay. Um, and my chair of governors uh, came in, sat me down, and said, "How are we going to handle this? We need to make sure we're protecting you." And that really took me back in terms of moving so much to the point where I'd got somebody looking out for me and making sure that I was safe, effectively. Um, and as it happens, we, we talked about how I would do it and, and things like that, and that was fine. Um, and, but it was, that was an amazing thing for me. There's a lot to unpick from that story. Um, going back to the start point, because we talked about the culture of shame that Section 28 created, that internalised shame that we've all felt and still feel now, no matter how much we try to unlearn it, um, and how for the first, you know, eight or more years you felt uncomfortable coming out to people. You then describe this brilliant moment where the culture has suddenly been created, where you are comfortable to come out and therefore be able to have those open conversations. We spoke with Dominic Arnold a couple of weeks ago um, from Just Like Us, and he talked about the importance of LGBT people being given a voice because they're silenced for so much of their lives. When they're suddenly given a voice or an opportunity to be open, the transformational power it can have is remarkable. Can you talk about the impact it's had for you in terms of creating that kind of culture in your school? Uh, do you know that that is very much an epiphany moment? It really is because um, I, I think it, it because I found the confidence, it's made me all the more determined to actually be able to give people a voice, uh, young people a voice, um, so that they don't feel like I felt. Um, that was um, that's very much uh, the the feeling that I've got at the moment in terms of um, the work that I've been doing in my current school um, and and the work that we I've been doing about um, the the No Outsiders um, project. 
Um, and again, that was uh, that was something that I kind of fell into by accident, really. Um, so I, I moved to my current school um, about five years ago. Um, and uh, when I got when I got into the school, um, it was very much um, gay was used as a, a common insult in the playground. Um, if something wasn't um, didn't fit with what people liked, it was gay. If somebody didn't like something, um, it was gay. It was all always used as as um, banter. Um, and and a parent actually came to me. Um, just as, as I started working at the school um, and uh, her um, daughter had been picked on um, because uh, she'd got a, a, a lesbian mum. And I think it was really very tricky for her. Um, and that was the almost the light bulb, really, because I felt um, I can't have that happening um, to people in my school. Um, and as it, it's transpired, there are a number of um, either uh, parents or children um, who are questioning. And I feel that they are now being given that, that voice to be able to talk more openly. Um, and actually, I, I wanted to give the children the, the voice to, to actually um, almost have that power to say, no, this isn't acceptable. Um, and Leicestershire have got a, a, um, a scheme that's called Beyond Bullying. Uh, and it's, it's a fantastic um, scheme that you can work with. Um, and it gave opportunities for, um, for us as a school to network with other like-minded schools. Um, we ended up going to a conference down at um, Leicester City Football Club. And... Um, we were we were able to take the children there, and it was just wonderful to see um, so many children with their school leaders um, and uh, with kind of either PSHE leads or um, anti-bullying leads or whoever it was that was there, and some of them have got governors there with them as well. And uh, there were a range of um, LGBT speakers um, who were there to talk to the children about their experiences. Um, some of them were actually really quite young um, and they were opening up to the children and, and the adults in the room about their experiences. And I remember taking the, the, the children home uh, or taking the children back to school in my car and the conversation between them and the teaching assistant that was with me was just immense because they were fired up about how they were going to take this back to school and deal with it. And they ended up, uh, they, they, they'd already started working on lyrics to a song that they were going to teach the school. Um, and they, they basically changed the lyrics to YMCA to STOP. And they, they, they changed all the lyrics to it. And they, they were then given the opportunity um, to actually teach the school choir that song so that then became our our school song for a little bit um and they were then able to use their their position on the school council to be able to influence change within the school and that very much has been a driver for me giving the children the voice to be able to say this is wrong we need to do something about it and move it forwards just like I'd want to engage children in kind of thinking about 
uh, improving their environment or um, improving playtime or anything like that. It's just giving them that voice to be able to say, you can make a difference. I think that's an amazing journey to go from beginning your career, living this double life and hiding so many parts of yourself and not being able to have honest conversations in school to moving to a place now where you're living authentically, but also encouraging and empowering other people to do that, be that parents, staff members or children in your school. You mentioned a little bit then about um, the work that you've done with Andrew Muffet as part of the NART Ciders programme. We've had Andrew on as a guest on the show a couple of weeks ago. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your work with him. Yeah, not a problem. Um, so uh, following on from the work that we did with the, the um, Beyond Bullying work, um, the, the Leicestershire local lead basically said to me, um, we're looking at putting together a project um, called No Outsiders. Um, and it's it's going to be hopefully a big thing, but we want to pilot it with a, a small group of schools. Would you be interested? And so I said, yeah, that it, I was always up for kind of uh, doing something different, maybe getting an, a, an award for the school or something like that. So I said, yeah, that would be wonderful. Didn't really know an awful lot about it. Um, but we were invited to um, a training session in Leicester, and uh, Andrew Moffat is incredibly charismatic. And um, he, uh, he really inspired um, myself and a governor who I took down um, with me to, to the meeting. Um, and he shared some of the resources. Um, he shared basically how we as a school could um, use those resources and also implement them but he also talked about his own experiences and and his experience um, as a teacher is obviously very different to to mine um, in terms of how he was received um, and uh, and he he kind of he used humor very much to kind of engage you but at the same time um, I was sat there thinking that could have been me and um, and as it happened, I was uh, I, I'd already um, started work on my um, first children's book, um, and I'd been working on that for about a, a year. And so I sat there, kind of quietly simmering um, and participating in the in the training. And he actually talked through some of the lessons and some of the books. Uh, and he's obviously very passionate about what he does. And um, he gave, gave myself and uh, my, my governor at the time um, lots of hints and tips about what we could do to make sure we had a successful pilot of, of the No Outsiders project. And um, effectively, the, the, the top line is it needed to be something that was top down in terms of I needed to make sure that um, it was coming from the leadership stance and it was something that we were all driving and it was coming from the uh, not just myself but the governors it was just going to be and um and he also gave some tips about how to actually uh, get parents on board because um immediately when you start thinking about um teaching about um lgbt relationships um there's there's always that niggle in the back of your mind of um is how is this going to go down with parents are parents going to be up in arms are they going to be welcoming 
And so one of the things that he actually said was, when you go back into school, consider how your parents are going to react. If it's going to be uh, potentially controversial, um, work with small groups to begin with and drip feed and actually have the resources out to kind of share with parents, talk through um, the potentially more controversial books um, and why they're being used and why they're being used at that particular aspect, but also refer back to the Equalities Act and actually refer back to the fact that actually it's not just talking about LGBT um, people, you're talking about people with disabilities, you're talking about race, you're talking about religion, and you're talking about all of the protected characteristics, basically. And um, so it was it was incredibly empowering, um, again, because I felt, yes, I can make a change. Yes, I can do this. I can work with my governors. Um, the governor that I took was a, quite an influential um, governor. Um, so I'd, I'd chosen her specifically because I knew that she would help me um, get this across. Um, and the governors were very supportive of doing it. Um, and then once we'd, we'd actually talked about that, I actually, I, I took one of the lessons and I taught one of the lessons to the staff to engage the staff, to show the staff how I wanted to, to kind of work through the project. Um, and once I got the governors and the staff buy-in, I said, now we are going to take this to um, the parents and we're going to effectively consult with the parents. And I'm, um, and I said to the staff at this point, it's likely that we may get some backlash. Um, so if there is some backlash, I'm going to be there. We're going to do it in small groups. We're going to just do it to um, set year groups. And, um, and if there is then any backlash from that, I'll be there to kind of pick up the pieces. Um, and there weren't any pieces to pick up. It was... It, it was um, almost a non-event really the the, the parents um, that did come in were very pleased to see what we were doing um the parents that didn't come in um i took it as they weren't really um worried about what we were doing um and so we rolled it out and it was at the point where we'd just done about a year's worth of work um when um, there was obviously the um, the issues that then happened at Andrew Moffat's school um, down in Birmingham. And um, I guess that was pretty um, tricky for him um, because, uh, again, it's his baby, isn't it? And it was something that he was really proud of and, and he'd already gone through a lot of um, issues himself um, prior to kind of putting this, this together. And... Um, Concurrently, Leicestershire were wanting to roll the, the pilot out um, that one step further. So uh, we'd been asked as, a, as one of the pilot schools to um, attend some training with a further group of um, 10 schools to get more of them on board. And all this happened within the space of about the same week as the protests down in Birmingham. And we went ahead. Uh, with um, the second rollout of, of the training. And, and it was interesting because there were a couple of schools there, a couple of faith schools there, who were a bit concerned about how it would be um, accepted within their schools. Um, and actually, I think 
I, un I understand those concerns because at the end of the day, you want to do what is right for, for your children in your particular setting. Um, but I think now, because obviously the government have changed um, the, the um, statutory guidance on um, relationships and sex education, uh, I think that's given us that little bit more power to be able to say, well, actually, we do need to teach about um, equality. Um, and we do need to make sure that every child is represented. Um, and I'm, I'm actually quite a, a I, I don't think I'm quite as shy as I was when I was a child. Um, so I'm quite forthright, I think now. Um, and uh, on the back of all of that work, um, we were then approached by um, the Victoria Derbyshire Show. Um, so they'd approached Leicestershire County Council asking for them, uh, for, for their comment, basically, on what was happening down in Birmingham. And Leicestershire County Council were quite risk averse, didn't want to really uh, be seen to be either in support or, or not, really, of the, the situation. And they didn't, they just didn't want to have any backlash themselves. Um, and... So one of the one of the team at Leicestershire County Council basically contacted me and said um, that the BBC were looking to to um, find a school that would be able to stand by what was happening down in Birmingham, uh, and it was without hesitation that I said yes. Um, once I'd said yes, I thought, oh crikey, what have I done? Um, but actually, um, I felt really. Um, I just thought it was incredibly important to to stand by Andrew Moffat um, with with his beliefs because actually I felt that he'd stood by me with with what he'd helped me to do and so I I allowed the the film crews to come in um, and obviously we went through the the um, kind of uh, the the permissions and and things like that with the parents and at that point I was wondering whether we'd have some parents that would say, actually, we're not happy with this. Um, but actually the parents were so supportive, 100% um, behind us. Some of them actually uh, actually spoke um, on, on film as well. Um, and for me, that was our community standing in solidarity with the, the community uh, of the, the schools in Birmingham that were, that were having the difficulties. So I think Andrew has had a massive, massive input in, in our school's life. Um, and, and hopefully we've then been able to kind of support the work that he's been doing. It's great to hear how effectively you've been able to embed that and obviously learn from some of those lessons in terms of the, the initial problems that Andrew had with No Outsiders. So it's great to hear mm -hmm. that. Um, Andrew Moffat and also Kirsty Stubbs, who's also head teacher of a primary school we spoke uh, to a few weeks ago, they both shared some lovely stories about the impact the No Outsiders programme has had on their young people. Could you maybe share a few examples from your school? Uh, absolutely. Um... I've talked about uh, obviously the the children from the school council coming home and uh, and and actually wanting to kind of be creative about how they stand by uh, children of of any kind of background. Um, but we've had a number of children now speaking to um, external people, be that Ofsted inspectors or um, the local authority, um, and they're they're very eloquent about 
um, what they believe um, no outsiders to be. And um, one of the things that um, I had a child um, who was a gymnast. Now, at the time, I wasn't aware that he did gymnastics. Um, but he basically said, I want to do an assembly. Um, and I want to basically say that it's okay for boys to do gymnastics. And that's just one of a number of children who came to me and said, I want to lead an assembly about. Um, and I think that's probably the, the biggest impact, seeing the children feeling that they've got the voice to be able to stand up and talk to um, the, the rest of their school about something that is um, very personal to them. And okay, it's not an LGBT issue, um, but it's certainly about equality and acceptance and, uh, and it's okay to, to do something that is not necessarily the norm. Um, and I think that's probably the, the biggest impact for me. Um, but also um, when, I, when I wrote my um, second book, I, I took some of the images into the school um, and asked the children for their kind of input. Um, and so they kind of, they said which, which parts of the images they liked and what bits they, they felt should be included in the book. Um, and it was only, it, it was a matter of maybe a few months ago um, that one of the children that was involved in that class actually referred back to the fact that they felt that they'd had um, input into one of the books. Um, and I can't even remember how the conversation came about, um, but they've obviously got that, they feel that they've had that little bit of input into something um, that, that makes them feel special as well. You've just mentioned about the children's books that you've written. Could you tell us a little bit more about those? Uh, yes. Um, so uh, actually I, I wrote those Again, it was an accident, really. Um, it, it was not something particularly intentional in the first place. Um, and I had a, a, a parent um, who came to me and said to me that um, her child um, was being picked on. Um, and so I felt that I wanted to give them a voice and I'd already used um, the story Antango Makes Three um, as a, a vehicle for, for talking about um, LGBT issues with, with the children. Um, and I wanted a story that had got two mums in. And at the time, I couldn't find um, anything that lent itself particularly to, to working with the children. And we were, we were introducing pets into the school. Um, so I had um, an African land snail, um, uh, which... Um, the, the children actually called him Turbo. Uh, I say him. Um, uh, but um, the children called uh, the snail Turbo. And the, they really, they love all the different animals that, that we kind of introduced into the school. And I just thought, um, I want something that's got animals um, that, that's relevant to, to my, my children. And I looked uh, at 
I looked at how I could create a story that had two mums in because I thought there's nothing out there, so I'm going to do something myself. And I tell stories all the time. I, I write um, quite a lot anyway, um, just for the fun of it. Um, so I created this story um, about two um, snails because I thought that gets around the whole the difficulty of talking about sex. It's actually more about the relationships and it's more about actually um, just looking at different family makeups, really. And so I drafted the story and one of my teachers um, basically created a PowerPoint um, and just put some cartoon pictures um, on, on the PowerPoint. And she used the story um, in an assembly that she delivered. It wasn't one that I delivered. And she came to me, she said, oh, it's a brilliant story. You need to get it published. And um, I kind of joked about it and thought, yeah, that, that's ridiculous. But I kind of sat back and I thought, actually, I'm going to just kind of Google it. Um, and uh, Google has an awful lot to answer for, doesn't it? And so... I, I Googled it and I, I looked um, for um, some different publishers. I hadn't got a, a clue really about um, publishing and, and anything like that. And um, in the meantime, I actually I spoke to a friend of mine who actually does some illustrations and, and things like that. And uh, so I spoke to him and he said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. And he, he drew some um, very basic stories to, to begin, uh, some very basic pictures to begin with. And, and I loved it. I loved the style. I kind of wanted it to be almost kind of like the Mr. Man books. Um, and so I wanted it to be quite um, simple and it, it would just get the message across basically. Um and it took me about 18 months to get the book out there. Um, I, there was a, I can't remember the name of the company now that came back to me, but they, they offered me the opportunity to have a contributory contract. And when you look into the um, fine uh, detail of it, it's almost you, you lose control of what you've created. Um, and, and I didn't really want that. I'm a bit of a control freak. Um, and I wanted to kind of um, keep control of, of um, what I was putting together um, and it just so happened that um, one of the parents that's in my school uh, at the, or that was at the school at the time um, was uh, an indie author and I went to talk to her um, said I've got this idea about putting a, a story together and she said well have you thought about um, self-publishing and so it was at that point that I had my mindset changed effectively. Um, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to kind of go with the flow. Um, and I, it, it's cost me a lot of money to kind of do it, but it's more about getting the story out. It's more about kind of, uh, it's just been a little project to kind of um, keep me going. It's actually, um, I, I'm, I'm now inundated with snails all over the house. I've got kind of, everybody gets me snail kind of, ornaments and um garden snails and all sorts of things um so it's kind of become a bit of a, a bit of a beast now um but i i then used that that story um and i wanted to look at actually um, thinking about supporting the trans agenda as well um because 
there was a child who um who I, I got to know who wasn't quite sure um about how they felt and so I wanted to put something out there um that allowed people to think well I could be um a boy I could be a girl I could be, it, it's up to you um really and I, and so that really was the premise behind the second book. So the second, the, the first book is where um, two mummies bring up two baby snails. Um, the the um, second book is where um, the baby snails go to snail school and meet a, um, a friend, a slug um, called Cyril. And Cyril wants to be just like um, his two snail friends. Um, and so they go in search of um, shells to help um, Cyril feel a bit more like them and I just think actually the the message that I want to get across with those books is be yourself because that's that that's what I want every child to feel like I want them to feel like they can just be themselves it doesn't matter um it doesn't matter what you look like as you say they're available on Amazon um they're also available at a number of independent um bookshops across across the country actually but uh, in Nottinghamshire um, there's five leaves and uh, the bookcase um, the bookcase is in Loudham and five leaves is in Nottingham um, but it's also available in a number of other independent bookshops including um, Gaze the Word in London um, and uh, I very often do uh, school visits as well um, so if anybody does want me to do school visits um, I'll need to work it around my school holidays, but I'm happy to come in and do um, author talks and, and I'll sign copies as well. Amazing. Having a book engage the word is a pretty iconic thing to do. It was, do you know what, actually, um, I was pretty terrified going in and talking to them, but I just, I emailed them and they, they were lovely. They said, pop in, come and talk to us. Uh, and they were, they were quite happy to put the book on the shelf. So I was like, right, great, excellent. Amazing. So, Troy, you've talked about the sort of transformational power about people being open about their identities and empowering other people. Uh, with that in mind, our last question is, what is the best thing about being an LGBT teacher? The best thing about being an LGBT teacher is the fact that it gives me um, a little bit of empathy towards um, other minority groups, um, other people who would consider themselves to be outsiders, um, because uh I know I felt quite marginalised as a as a child. Um, I and I I just don't want to see that with other children. And so I will make a beeline um, for those people who um, do need that little bit extra um, support to try and encourage them to um, to to feel like they fit in. Troy, that was such a good answer. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. I think to begin your teaching career, leading that kind of double life that you described and not feeling like you could be open and hiding so much of yourself, to now be at a point where you're living more openly, living authentically and encouraging and empowering other people to do the same, both within your school community, but much wider with the work that you're doing with your books as well. I think the ripple effect of that kind of authenticity really is boundless. I really enjoyed listening to Troy's story, that journey from back in the early 2000s under Section 28 when he had to hide his sexuality and almost lead that double life 
up to the point now where he's the head teacher and creating this culture where people can be themselves and be open. Yeah, I I often reflect on my journey with inclusive education from kind of a point of not being authentic towards being authentic, but really that's only spanned five or six years. It's interesting to hear his journey that has spanned kind of a whole career time. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, we'd be really grateful if you could leave a review or a five-star rating. This really helps other educators to find these stories. If you want to continue the conversation or comment on this week's episode, you can find us on Twitter at Pride Progress. Thanks for listening.